If you are able, please stand for the reading of the word. This morning, I will be reading from Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, see the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more for the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, see, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Those who conquer will inherit these things, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning, Highland. It's good for us to be together today. Jeff, uh, Please remind me the next time that Nicole's going to do communion that I get to go first, all right? Because you heard the gospel already today. Um, but the good news is you get to hear it again. Um, we've been, we're, I, I kind of laid down a gauntlet last Sunday. If you weren't here, I said something, and it, I think it sounded more harsh than I expected, but I'm going to repeat it because I think it's true. Here's what I said last week. We're moving into a series. It's going to be five weeks, actually four sermons, uh, Senior Sunday is going to be kind of in the middle. But we're going to go through a series of four weeks, and it's going to be about the process that Highland envisions for, to restore Highland. It's part of our vision. The larger vision of Highland is to restore Highland, restore Abilene, restore the world. And we find ways to partner with God to, to achieve the mission of God. Um, and I want to explain to you what it means to be a part of this church over the next four weeks. Here's what I said. It's true. It may sound harsh at first. If at the end of these four weeks, you aren't convinced that this is the right place for you, then we want to just kindly say like, hey, there are a lot of great churches in Abilene. Go in peace. If in the next four weeks, you aren't convinced that the mission of Highland is in alignment with the mission of God, that the vision here that we have is worthy of your time and your talent and your treasure. If at the end of these four weeks, you do not see yourself as a person who can be a part of God's mission and work in this time, in this place, with these people, then we just want to kindly, gently and lovingly say, okay. But if in the next four weeks you are drawn to the cross... If in the next four weeks you see the power of the resurrection as transformative, not just to the cosmos, but to yourself personally. And if you see that this is a community that is seriously committed to the work of God, then we invite you to double down and find a place here. We, the way we articulate the Restore Highland part of our vision is called the Pathway. And it's on five giant signs on one side of the, the, the atrium back there. And if you go on your way out, you can look at those 
closely. You can also see on the other side pictures of how our vision is manifest in a lot of different ways. Those signs, as Jeff mentioned, are also along this side of the wall in the auditorium. And I inherited the pathway. It was something, the work that the staff did before I got here. And it took me a while to figure it out. It took me a while to kind of live into its rhythm and its, and its, its beauty. Um, and it's something that as I, the more I lean into it, the more I love the elegant beauty of what it means to be here. So let me explain it to you. And we're going to talk about this for the next four weeks. If you want to be a part of what God is doing to restore the world here at Highland, then there's four things we want you to do. We want you to engage in meaningful worship with us as a church. We want you to find a pleasant table for you to commune with one another, not just the Lord's Supper that we experience, but some sort of smaller expression of Highland than a small group or a class or some other place. We want you to find yourself, uh, find a way to commit to baptism and to live into your baptism. The baptism isn't just the moment where you meet Christ in the waters, but it is also a lifetime of spiritual formation. And we want you to find a place to serve, a place where you can find self-emptying sacrifice like Jesus at the cross and, uh, and find a place where you can jump in. And that could be sitting in a two-year-old classroom or volunteering at his kids. It could go to all sorts of places around Abilene, at Grace, and at Freedom. It could, you could find it in a million different places. But we want you to find a place to serve. Worship, community, growth, service. What the leadership at Highland believes is that when you engage in those four things, you are going to experience the mystery of the restoration of God in your life. And so the problem with this thing is, is the way it looks like on the wall is it looks very linear, right? It looks like you go from point A to point B, point C to point C, and the result is restoration. And if you are new to Christ, I want you to know that's true. That there is kind of a progression that you could take. And you, could, you can jump on on the third spot and you end up in the second spot and you finally end up in the last spot. That's great. But there is kind of a progression there. But for those of us that have lived in this world and lived in the rhythm of this, we've, we, I realize that, that it's, it's more complicated than that, right? And so I want to submit to you, I want to make this simpler by making it more complex, right? I want to add a metaphor on top of the pathway, which is one way to think about the pathway is a labyrinth. Now, if you've never seen a labyrinth before, you can go up to ACU, and up by the lake, there's one that's in a, a stone plaza. It's a labyrinth. It's a, it's a tradition, Christian tradition that has existed for more than a thousand years, and it's a way that pilgrims would kind of experience journey without having to go anywhere, because one of the biggest myths that you experience as a Christian is that somehow God is over there, and I have to get to God when you realize God has been with you all along. And so a pathway is this, this winding trail, and it goes in toward the center, and then you find yourself moving away from the center, but there's always this kind of gravitational pull that pulls you to the middle of the labyrinth. And we believe, if you will carry the metaphor, that at its center of the labyrinth, at the center is the cross and the empty tomb. At the center of the labyrinth is everything that your heart has been longing for, yet you have not realized. It is the experience of what we call restoration. And so our lives are this journey walking the labyrinth, closer to the middle, away from the middle, being pulled and pushed 
by the forces of spiritual gravity. And, and here's, here's our thesis that we're going to work out of for the next four weeks. The anxiety of our age, and by anxiety I don't mean just like fear or worry, although that's included. I want to think of it in a, a bigger kind of meta context. The anxiety of our age, the, the forces of shame, anxiety, guilt, they, they still function to pull us away out of the center of our lives to meaningless pursuits of self-medication and narcissism. That the disquiet, the discomfort you experience as a human being is going to pull you to treat that in ways that are not of God. Yet, you can also experience the pull, the gravity, the centering of the universe back to the cross and to the empty tomb. Fleming Rutledge, who is an excellent preacher but also a theologian, she wrote this book on the crucifixion. And she talks about what it means as the center of our lives. What does it mean to have the cross as the center of our lives? And she, she writes about how that experiencing the cross sometimes pushes you away from it. Um, that the crucifixion was not only a means of capital punishment, it was a means of dehumanization and social control. And the only other type of capital murder that compares to what the cross did in the first century in the Roman world is the lynching tree. In fact, Paul speaks frequently on overcoming the shame of the cross for a reason. And the reason is it's the biggest hurdle of discipleship for Greeks and Romans and Jews in the first century. When you read the book of Mark and you get to the passion narrative, the part where Jesus is dying on the cross, the one thing that you notice is that Mark doesn't pay very much attention at all to the pain that Jesus endures. Instead, he focuses completely on the shame that Jesus endures. The author of Hebrews does the same thing. It was the kind of execution for slaves and rebels. It was the way of not only killing a person, but slowing down a movement. And maybe you're like me and you, you grew up in a kind of church that on summer camp when you're in middle school on the last day, someone would get up and kind of give you an autopsy of Jesus, like what happened at the cross. And it was kind of intended to be that, that moment of decision for you, right? That moment where you see what Jesus did in, in, in stark terms. And it was supposed to be this like 15-minute talk that inevitably turned into this 90-minute talk. That's not going to happen today. But what I want you to hear is what the cross did. Because I need you to understand the shame. I need you to understand the power. A crucifixion began with a beating and then a scourging. And a scourging was when they would use a whip with embeds of glass and bits of bone to tear the flesh off of someone's back. And, and this was actually an act of mercy. This wasn't an act of torture. It was an act of mercy because this is just to soften the person up so that the death on the cross would not last for days. A person's feet was nailed to the sides of a post. Their wrists were nailed to the cross post, um, usually in an art it looks like the nail goes through a person's hands, but actually the bones there are quite weak and you, you would tear your hand through. And so instead they would nail it into your wrist between those two bones so that your body could hang on that weight. The position of a cross creates pressure on nerves and compresses the muscles that allow you to breathe. 
And so you are in constant pain, and in order to take a breath, you must push up on nails to inhale. This action is incredibly traumatic on the heart and the respiratory system. You become exhausted, in constant pain, until you choose to die. And then in a moment, your automatic, autonomic nervous system takes over and you push yourself up again. Then you have to intentionally choose to die. You have to override your body's reflexes in order to die. Fleming writes, if Jesus' demise is confused merely as death, even a painful and tortured death, then the crucial point will be lost. Crucifixion was specifically designed to be the ultimate insult to personal dignity, the last word in humiliating and debilitating treatment. Degradation was the whole point. And there's a reason why Jesus is killed on a hill outside the city center. He was killed on a hill to be seen, to be derided, to be mocked. It's a public execution where you were hung naked above the crowd, left to be eaten by birds and vermin. Victims of crucifixion were subject to optimal, unmitigated, vicious ridicule. And the Romans knew as a means of social control, it was incredibly effective. And so when Paul speaks of the shame of the cross, what we have to realize is that it's absolutely essential. In 1 Corinthians, the Corinthian church is trying to abandon the shame of the cross for some other story or narrative that allows them to avoid this. And we get that. We understand because we've experienced this ourselves. It's like when your political candidate gets caught or goes to jail or the person on the back of your jersey is arrested for doing something illegal or your favorite TV reality star is recorded saying horribly racist things. And then you have to choose, like, does that jersey go into the back of your closet never to be seen again? Are you going to have to scrape that bumper sticker off the back of your car? Is the shame enough to abandon? And the weird thing is, is that the distance has made us numb to the shame of the cross. 2,000 years of distance and, and the, the beautification of the cross has created this psychological distance between modern believers and the shame of the cross. But Christianity is still the object of ridicule and derision. Just because someone has taken a cross and dipped it in gold and they wear it around their neck does not remove the shame of what happened to Jesus 2,000 years ago. Shame is such a crippling emotion. In Hebrews chapter 2, the author says, we fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, the beginner and the finisher of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Probably no modern person has done more work in, in shame and vulnerability than Brene Brown. And she writes it, it's interesting because America used to be a guilt culture. And, and the intent was to sign blame and then offer punishment and then move on. But America is becoming more influenced uh, into becoming a shame culture. And here's the difference, if you don't know what the difference is. 
Guilt says, I did something wrong. Shame says, I am something wrong. It internalizes the pain. It makes it your identity as opposed to an action. And half of the, sh- the pain of shame is the inability for us to deal with the imagined reality. Because when you experience shame, you suffer embarrassment and you suffer indignity and you do something that ends up on social media and you become, for the weekend, famous. And then life goes back to normal. Life moves on for everybody else, but not for you. You suffer. The reality is most of the shame we deal with is self-inflicted. And, and then there's the kind that's not. There's, there's this sort of public shaming, and that's, that's different. That actually has a purpose. You can imagine a society that has no sense of shame, what a disaster that would be. But there is a very kind of malformed sense of shame where a person internalizes it and they can't get out of the cycle. Brown would say shame needs three things to thrive. It needs secrecy. It needs silence. And it needs judgment. And I know that's true because I've experienced it. Brene would say that the way out of shame is vulnerability and empathy. Here's how it's true. I've been in a minister for about two years. I've been in, uh, working in Arkansas as a campus minister, and I loved campus ministry. And Arkansas has one of the best campus ministry systems in, in the world, in my opinion. There's just superstar after superstar of people that do an amazing job. And one of the, the, the highlights of the campus ministry system in Arkansas is the statewide retreat. It's when all of the public universities gather together in Little Rock, and they, they come together, and there's this amazing worship, and there's powerful speakers, and then they do some good for the, the city of Little Rock. And there's, there's all of this kind of... Um, excitement that happens around it, and lives are changed, and, and, and people that aren't Christian that come to that retreat because their friends invite them, they're baptized because they see what happens, and people meet other people from different parts of the city or the state, and, 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 and uh, relationships get formed that turn into marriages, and, and, and church planning teams get formed that go to other places around the world. It's this powerful moment, and it's been happening for 40 years. Well, my, my second year into ministry because every other campus minister in the state said, not it faster than I did. I was kind of given the gift of, of organizing the statewide retreat. And it was probably more than I could handle. But I did the best that I could. And I, I tried to organize <coughs> the speakers and who would come talk. And I tried to organize the events and what we would do. And I got a worship leader that would be great. And there was all of these pieces that were supposed to come together. And, and I forgot a piece. I forgot to talk to the people where we would be staying. And, and they would help us kind of do some work around Little Rock. I forgot to call that organization. And, and I thought we had enough time because I called them like five months ahead when I realized my mistake. And, and they get on the phone with me and they're like, well, we don't know if we can pull this off in five months. And there was a big sinking feeling in my stomach as it dropped four floors down. And I, and I began to go into kind of recovery mode. Well, yeah, well, let's, let's talk about that. Let me figure out how we can make this happen. Let's, let's figure out what we can do. And they were just real hesitant with me. And they said, well, you know, um, we, this is hard for us. And so uh, because you haven't, didn't contact us early enough, I'm not sure that we can do this. 
And I get more and more nervous. And they end the call by saying, you know, we're going we're gonna to stop, we're going to pray and, and listen to God for about 90 minutes, and then we're going to call you back. And they hung up the phone, and I, man, I began to pray right then because I, I saw what was going to happen. This whole thing is about to fall apart because, because I didn't call early enough, because I didn't uh, make the arrangements quick enough, because I forgot I made a mistake. And, and sure enough, they call back, and they say, yeah, we've been listening to God, and we don't think we're going to be involved with this anymore because you didn't call us early enough. And I felt, I felt terrible. What I, what I didn't know in those 90 minutes is they weren't also not only praying to God to see if they want to make the decision they made anyway, but also they were emailing every campus minister in the state telling them they weren't going to participate because I hadn't communicated well. And I felt destroyed. And so I start making phone calls, too, to more experienced camps ministers in the state saying, what do we do? And there were guys who were like, hey, don't worry about this. We're going to smooth it over. We'll talk it out. And um, hey, you know, what happened? What's, what's this email that I got? All of these things. And, and, I, and I felt completely exposed. I felt naked. I felt, I felt embarrassed. And for the first time in 40-odd years, the statewide retreat didn't happen. And everybody knew why. There is this kind of redeeming part of shame. Shame pushes us to realize that we are fragile, that we're normal, we're ordinary. Shame helps us realize that we make mistakes, and those mistakes, those mistakes sometimes hurt people. Brene Brown says the solution is empathy and vulnerability. It's somebody saying, yeah, yeah, me too. I got a call later that afternoon from another campus minister who said, you know, I was in charge of this retreat last year, and I called six months out. They were trying to tell me the same thing. They didn't have enough time. They didn't have enough um, interest. They were frustrated about things. They said, it may, it may not be completely you about this situation. I, want you, I just want you to know that. He said, I imagine how you're feeling and I've been there, me too. The cross is God's act of vulnerable empathy. That's what the incarnation is. That's Jesus comes to earth and lives as a human being and knows what it's like to be you, has experienced all of the joy and the, the peace, but also all of the heartache and the pain. He has been disappointed by other people. He has felt that others have let him down. He knows what it means to be like you, that Jesus can say, yeah, yeah, me too. The reason that we engage in worship as a body together is that worship is the antidote for the shame of the cross. What we do when we worship is we, we, we return God to the center of the cosmos, and this is the antidote. Some aspects of worship are troublesome at times, and we're all going to admit it. It's, the, it's that trend that we keep pushing ourselves onto the platform of our own praise, or that the belief that something new and louder is going to be somehow better. And these are the same struggles that the people that follow God have been wrestling with for years, for centuries. This is what Elijah struggles with. This is what the psalmists talk about. This is what the prophets are working on with Israel. These aren't new problems. 
But our goal is the acknowledgement of the throne room of God who has and is and will reign forever. It is our experience to enter into like in Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah sees what God is doing in the heavenly realms where Jesus' statement of glorifying the Father in the book of John and <coughs> the apocalyptic vision of new heavens and new earth. This is our foretaste of heaven. It's in worship. It's also our chance to say, me too, to one another. You had a bad week. So did I. It's also our chance to hear Jesus say, me too, in the cup and the bread, again and again and again to us. And this is what I love about our heritage as the Churches of Christ. Churches of Christ historically have been a cappella. Um, and it even happens in this service. Like, there's that moment, it happened like twice today where all the instruments drop out. It's just voices, straight a cappella. Man, I love those moments. This is why I love those moments. It's because in that moment, if you don't show up to worship, if you're not there singing your brains out, your heart out, then nothing happens. It happens because we all come together. There's, there's nothing but your own offering to create the praise. Here, worship is participatory. Even if you can't sing like me, it's participatory. We're going to make it loud enough that you don't even have to hear yourself. You sing out anyway. Here at Highland, worship is relevatory. Even if you don't feel it. I know that for some of us this morning, it took a lot of effort to get up out of bed and get yourself here to church. That was a monumental task. If that's where you're at, we are glad you are here. And you don't feel like worshiping God. That doesn't mean that worship's not going to do something for you. It's going to tell you something about the nature of God. And if I was a better preacher, I'd have one more atory because it's participatory, relevatory, but I couldn't think of it. The last thing is, is that it's all of us. This is nuance for every age and stage of life. It doesn't matter if you're a toddler that's just babbling along with the words or someone that's 106 that can barely stand for all the songs. We are here together for God. It is all of us. And what we hope to experience is a deeper insight, a deeper knowledge, a more careful understanding of the nature of the love of God a more clear vision of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And I guarantee you, a life in the habit of seasons of worship is the antidote to the shame that you feel. This is why we gather together. This is why we are the people of God. Because this is the only place that will honestly tell you who you are. Let's stand and sing. It was the foundation song when God planted the structure of creation. It began in heaven, and it has echoed every moment since that moment began. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It is the song that we sing, the first song that we will sing when we enter into heaven's gates, when we are joined by our dead. It is the song that we sing in our hearts with every breath that we take, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. May you this week find the antidote to all of your loss, all of your shame. May you find it at the cross. 
go with God this week.